Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Faraz Ali, CEO of Tanaya Therapeutics. Great to have you on today, and thanks for joining us, Faraz. Oh, thanks, Rahul. Looking forward to it. Wonderful. So, Faraz, to kick us off, walk us through how you got into biotech, the arc of your career, and where you are now. Thanks for the opportunity. A little bit of a non-traditional background, I have to admit. I was a biomedical engineer, electrical engineer at Stanford, and found back in the day, this is the 90s, and found that I wasn't as excited about computer science and electrical engineering as I thought going into it. I took a class in biology and particularly neurobiology, and that just lit my mind and determined early on that I was interested in healthcare, but wasn't necessarily interested in becoming a doctor. I was really interested and passionate about the idea of applying science and applying technology towards healthcare problems. So that led to graduating with a biomedical and engineering degree. First started my career in devices. I went to GE Healthcare. I left sunny California for not so sunny Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where the headquarters of GE Medical was at the time. Did some work on software and hardware for medical imaging equipment, think CAT scans, x-rays, MRIs, both software and hardware, and built some interesting products that are available today when I walk into a hospital. And so that was fun and exciting. But that led to a transition in my career. I went to business school, came to Boston to go to business school and was knew at that point that I wanted to be in healthcare long term was kind of fascinated by the drug side of things, the medicine side of things after having spent a few years in devices. And right across the street from my business school, there was this company called Genzyme that wasn't very well known, but they were focused on something called at that time orphan diseases that was also not very well known and appreciated. That also ignited my passion for healthcare and for this idea of situations where the sciences arrived to do something good in the world, but nobody was really focused. Certainly big pharma wasn't focused on these rare diseases. And Genzyme said, our strategy is to be entirely about rare diseases and build an entire company, our technology, our science, our capabilities, our portfolio, our business strategy, our commercial model around rare diseases. That really interested me. That just struck me as something different, ignited my sense of passion, my sense of mission. And so my first job out of business school and my transition into biotech came by going to Genzyme Corporation, and I was primarily in commercial roles. And lucky enough, over a almost decade career at Genzyme, to be involved in not one, not two, but four product launches, first-in-class therapies, enzyme replacement therapies for severe, fatal, rare genetic disorders. That was a very, very gratifying experience, both because of the orphan disease and patient focus, as well as that opportunity to see the change in people's lives as a result of these medical interventions. And that's it. I was hooked. I kind of knew that I always wanted to be in biotech. I always wanted to be at somewhat of the bleeding edge of something that's new and underappreciated, and uh, whether from a business model or patient population or therapeutic area perspective. So about a decade at Genzyme, after they got acquired by Sanofi, I was looking for my next gig. And right there in the Boston area, I came across Bluebird Bio. And at that time, there were 20 people in preclinical and private, and gene therapy was their area of focus. And that wasn't really a thing, kind of not like unlike orphan diseases. Gene therapy wasn't very well appreciated at that time. Most people either didn't believe in the science, that the science was ready for prime time, 
or even if the science was ready for prime time, people didn't believe that the business model was quite ready. How are you going to pay for a one-time potential cure for rare genetic disorder? And that, again, ignited in me that sense of passion and mission that I felt at Genzyme, which was, there were similar questions at the time. Is this science going to work? And is there a business model? And those have always struck me as the wrong questions to ask. The right question to ask is, can you make a profound difference in the lives of patients? And if you can make a profound difference in the lives of patients, then you will figure out smart teams that are willing to break out of traditional molds. We'll figure out the business model question. You'll figure out how to make that work. And so I joined Bluebird and got into the area of curative one-time potential curative gene therapies at Bluebird, was there for almost five years, saw multiple programs, including for rare genetic disorders and for oncology using an ex vivo Lenti program. I was there for a few years after that. I was then on the book, the rare disease train, as well as the genetic therapy train went to Blue Regenix Bio, which is a leader in AV gene therapy. That took me to Bethesda, Maryland. I was there for about two years as a chief business officer. Again, ignited my sense of passion. And they were working on rare diseases using a completely different genetic therapy approach. AV's very different product profile versus ex vivo lenti. And so two years there, family reasons caused me to consider a move to California. I had three young children at the time. So I was looking for my next gig and I had to be in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And by that point, really excited and passionate about rare genetic diseases, really excited and passionate about potentially curative gene therapies. And I was looking to combine those two things into my next endeavor. And lo and behold, that's when I came across Tanaya uh, and took on Tanaya as a first-time CEO at the company in 2018. And I know we'll spend some time talking about Tanaya and what we're doing here, but it really brought together the different threads of my career, looking for something new and underappreciated opportunity for real patient impact, and particularly in the area of rare genetic diseases, and the opportunity to apply some cutting-edge novel science and potentially curative therapeutic approaches to, in this case, the leading cause of death in the world. Great. Thank you, Faraz, for that background. We've had a few folks from the Genzyme Mafia that are now in leadership roles at Biotechs that have been on this podcast before, and it certainly seems like it was a very influential experience for many there. I'm curious to hear what are aspects of your experience from your time at Genzyme that you still carry with you today in your current role? My guess is everybody, you're correct. Actually, it has been quite a healthy mafia of folks who've left there and gone on to helm different companies. And I do think it is very much about the culture that existed there, the culture and the strategic focus. I'm sure to a T, everybody talks about the intense focus on patients and that that is something I've carried throughout my career and continue to care as a flaming right torch for the rest of my career. I do think if you really center on what the patient needs and you build your company around that, that leads to better decision-making. And I would say the potential to really rethink the business model, I think that was something that Genzyme was willing to do. A lot of people focus in on price as, well, that was their big innovation, like expensive $200,000 a year therapies. That wasn't the real insight. The real insight was how do you bend the entire healthcare system to do a better job to diagnose, manage, treat, and reimburse for therapies for these rare genetic disorders, right? Most countries around the world didn't even have a way to diagnose and manage and treat these patients. And part of the insight was Genzyme went global very early on in its history because it wasn't just about, hey, these are expensive therapies, so we should focus on the US and the EU5, for example, in Japan. The idea of we're on a mission to change lives and those lives are around the world. And so they were in 40 different countries, in fact, more global than some of their much bigger biotech peers, which is an insight that a lot of people don't have. And that has also stayed with me, which is focus on patients, 
think about this as a mission globally, and then build your business model and your capabilities and your people around these ideas. And don't be hesitant to reinvent the business model around the opportunity that you're doing. And don't be hesitant to engage with healthcare systems around the world to try to evangelize on behalf of the science and the patients that you're trying to address. Well put, Faraz. Being a first-time CEO now, and if I could ask you to think back to when you were first considering the job or started the job, if you could talk to us a little bit about what were some of the perhaps non-obvious and non-expected learnings that you weren't anticipating, but that you quickly needed to increase your skill set or knowledge base or even how you approach things from then to now. Yeah, that's a great question. My career has been, as I mentioned, non-traditional, right? I mean, I went from biomedical engineering to drug development. I went into new areas like rare diseases, for which, frankly, there wasn't a lot of information sitting on a shelf to say, this is Fabry disease. This is Gaucher disease. So one thing I think I've learned, I didn't realize it was a strength at the time, nor did I realize it was a competency at the time. But now in hindsight, I can say that is absolutely a competency I've developed and applied, which is you learn what you need to learn in every role. A, you have to be a continuous learner. B, you have to be willing to dig in and roll up your sleeves, no matter what point you are in your career, to learn something new. That something new may be an entirely new disease area, and you literally, by plowing through enough literature and talking to enough experts, become the expert in that within your company or within that role or the science. Whether it's the disease or the science, you have to be prepared to be a continuous lifelong learner and to assemble just in time the talent and the people on the knowledge base around you around, again, that disease, around that science, around those capabilities. I think that's something that I've learned, I'd say both the fun way and the hard way, that in order to be successful in this business, you have to be a lifelong learner. There's no point in your career where you can afford to say, well, now I'm a CEO, so now I'm above all of that, and I'm going to have these content experts that you can rely on. I think you do need to rely on content experts, but there's no substitute for being willing to dig in and get into the detail and educate yourself. I guess that's something I would convey to, for example, people who are at different stages of the career listening to this podcast is be prepared to be a lifelong learner and don't hesitate to put yourself in front of an opportunity for which on paper you may not be the best prepared candidate. I can safely say there's not every single role I've taken that was meaningful in my last 20 years. I was not the perfect candidate on paper for it. On paper, there were better candidates than me, but some combination of my willingness to dig in, the reputation I'd established in my previous roles, my willingness to sort of put up my hand and say, I want to do it, and the passion that people on the other side of the table, back then it was tables, not really Zoom calls, they could palpably sense that this is a guy who really wanted to dig in, be different, do different, get into the details, and do some good. I think there was an element of that that I would suggest to anybody, do not hesitate to shoot for the moon for a role that on paper you're not qualified, but be prepared to work hard and learn a lot. It has nothing to do with what you learned in your school or what you learned in your degree, be it an MD degree or a PhD degree or an MBA degree. Be prepared to learn before the job and on the job for whatever it is that you're trying to set out to do. Yeah, that's great advice. Being a first-time CEO myself, I'm curious to hear how you've been approaching the emotional ups and downs of being a CEO, anything that you've learned about how to better navigate that for yourself, and then taking that a step further around how that has impacted your approach to your team as they navigate the ups and downs that are inherent in everything we do in biotech? Yeah, that's a great question, honestly. And now you're getting into territory where I'll be thinking a little bit more on the fly here and thinking out loud. I would say 
anybody who gets to know me realizes I'm deeply passionate. I've been lucky in my career to do only the things that I'm deeply passionate about, but I would never give that advice to only do what you're passionate about. That works for some, doesn't work for everybody, but it does mean that I have high highs and low lows, right? Because the sense of mission means that every setback, you feel a little bit more strongly. Every success, you feel a little bit more intensely. As a CEO, I think the passion can be effective and infectious, but you need to be more thoughtful about how you apply it. I do hear from employees, from investors, from board members, that that sense of passion comes through and that it's infectious, makes me effective at evangelizing on behalf of the things that we're working on, which encourages investors to invest, encourages an executive team and employees to come on board you know, gives a sense of confidence of the board, but you do have to manage that emotion. So there are definitely high highs and low lows, but I have had to become more careful and more deliberate about when to show the passion or when to show a disappointment or how and when to do that, because you're setting the tone, you're setting the culture and you want to model behaviors because people are looking at what you're doing. But that hasn't been difficult. It's just been something that I've got to be more deliberate about. And also recognizing the emotions and the ups and downs of the leadership team around me and giving them coaching. So I think managing emotions and managing your energy is really, really important. And what was effective when you were early in your career may not be as effective later in your career and constantly being thoughtful about it. But thoughtful doesn't mean I would want anybody listening to this to realize you should always be your authentic self. I think something that we have lost a little bit along the way, particularly in this environment of more virtual interactions is a little bit of that just good old fashioned, I'm going to get in behind a closed door with somebody and show some vulnerability, show some authenticity, engage with them, look at them in the eye, meet them where they are when you're having a conflict or where you're having a significant disagreement. You got to be yourself and you got to be authentic and true and not lose that sense of authenticity. And that doesn't mean that you're letting your passions run wild. So there's a difference between being authentic and being sort of passionate and being emotional, being more thoughtful about that as a leader is something I've had to do. And just to double click on that for a minute, are there systems that you've put into place now to help you learn how to deal with those ups and downs in terms of just how you work and how you structure your day or your week? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I would say not just for me, but for my entire executive team. I mean, one bit of insight here, Tanaya, we're doing some incredible stuff. I know we'll talk about Tanaya specifically in a bit, but A lot of the leaders over here are first-time leaders themselves. I'm a first-time CEO. I have a first-time chief medical officer. I have a first-time chief technical officer, first time of a lot of C-suiters in their role. And so uh, one, with that comes the humility that, look, none of us have a playbook. And by the way, even if you do think you had a playbook, you got to park it at the door because what you're trying to do here is different and unique. This is my third startup between Bluebird, Regenix, and now Tanaya. Third time joining a company in the first 20 to 30 people and then watching that company grow and go from preclinical to clinical transition and from private to public. And there's no playbook, right? There's no checklist. You have to work with your executive team to create something for the first time, whether it's a process or a way of which you're going to make decisions. And so I would say we do need systems and processes in a ways for learning to happen, for self-reflection to happen, and frankly, coaching. Many executives at the company, including myself, we have coaches to help us become more aware of our blind sides to become more aware of our strengths and where we're being most effective and being less effective, both as individuals, as well as a collective team that's trying to set not only strategy, but set culture. I'm a big believer in culture. And so if you're trying to build a robust culture, you have to be deliberate about that early in the company. And if you're being deliberate about culture early in the company, you have to be very deliberate about the signals 
intentional and unintentional that you and your executive team as leaders are sending. And so, yes, you do need structures and systems in place to ensure that you're being reflective. You're listening to feedback. You create a speak up culture. For example, at Tanaya, we talk about speak up culture. We want every employee to feel empowered to speak up and to say what's on their mind, even if it's unpopular. And you need those systems like performance reviews, authentic conversations, and authentic engagement with the board, executive coaches, to make sure that it's all coming together in a deliberate way rather than a haphazard ad hoc way. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing a bit of your own personal journey and allowing us to riff here a bit. Now to switch gears, I'd love to hear your perspective on the application of genetic modalities and Mm -hmm. where we are right now and perhaps the convergence of that with identifying areas of unmet need and perhaps white space and how you approach thinking about that convergence. First, that convergence is exactly what ignites my passion and what I've been lucky enough to do in my career. I saw the opportunity to do some good in orphan diseases back before orphan diseases were a thing and popular. Saw the opportunity to do something with gene therapy at Bluebird Bio back before that was a thing. You know, it's hard to believe that that was how far we've come in in about a decade. So it certainly shaped my thinking. I'll talk a little bit about Tanaya and more specifically, and then use that as a jumping spot for what the question you asked. Look, I joined Tanaya in 2018. Tanaya, right from the get-go, decided to do something somewhat different. The traditional biotech playbook is to, you know, you become an expertise in a particular technology, call it gene therapy, AAV gene therapy or ex vivo lenti gene therapy or gene editing. And the traditional biotech playbook is apply that to a whole bunch of different therapeutic areas. And that's rewarded. It's rewarded by investors. It's rewarded in the media. And what we're decided to do at Tanaya is to do something different. We said we're going to become an expert and a specialist on heart. The heart is a complicated organ. It's It's got complicated electrophysiology, biomechanical, in addition to just being a, a cool organ. And we decided to say we're going to focus on the heart, but be modality agnostic. So that means, indeed, we do have a lot of focus on genetics, and I'll get into that. But by being modality agnostic, actually, we follow the science. So for a particular indication, a gene therapy, a gene transfer may be the right answer. And we pursue that. And in fact, two of Tanaya's lead programs are AAV gene therapies, lock and key gene therapies for some leading genetic causes of heart disease. But we may also look at a particular indication and say a small molecule is the right approach there, either because of the fit of the science and or because of the fit with the market and what that product needs to be successful. Yet another therapeutic area or subdivision within heart disease may be more amenable to gene silencing or gene editing. And again, we follow the science. So within Tanaya's early portfolio, we have gene therapy, we have gene editing, we have small molecules, we have cardiac regeneration. If a patient loses heart cells, there's no therapy in earth that can put those cells back, for example, of a heart attack. So our founders came up with a very novel approach to cardiac regeneration. We have that under our roof as well. So what's come with that is deep insight in biology, and then we're more modality agnostic. That's different. That's not the way things have historically been done, and we're willing to try that. Particularly with regards to now double-clicking on genetic medicine, I think one of the real interesting things that's happening in the field of cardiology, and I dare say overhaul is going to happen in many therapeutic areas is we're going to take indications that we've historically not thought through the lens of genetics, and we're going to start thinking about them through the lens of genetics. So heart disease, historically, people have thought about it as the preview of small molecule for large indications, like generalized heart failure, or HEF-REF, or cardiovascular disease, statin lowering, or antihypertension. And now, though, we are understanding that some patients who are dying of or have early morbidity due to heart failure We now actually understand over the last 20 or so years, the genetic drivers of that. There's a whole field of genetic cardiomyopathies. So 
hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we now understand the long tail of genetics of that. Dilated cardiomyopathy, we understand the genetic targets. And so with that genetic insight that has come over the last 20 years, we now have the opportunity to match that to genetic tools, whether that's RNAi or it's AAV gene transfer or it's CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing or whatever comes next. And so this has been done very successfully in oncology. And now we're taking a page out of the playbook of oncology and applying that to the leading cause of death in the world, which is heart disease and cardiovascular disease. And so we're not alone. There's us and other pioneers who are trying to do this, but it's in a whole brave new world where we're taking a large indication showing that with genetic insight and with genetic tools, you could advance new product candidates more precisely and more rapidly to and through clinical development and to early approvals. That's the goal. Get to a larger signal to noise ratio with us on the basis of a smaller end of patients in clinical development because of a more precise matching of your genetic intervention with the underlying genetic cause of their heart defect. Great. That's wonderful primer for the work now that you're pursuing. So talk to us a little bit about where you are from a development perspective, how large the team is, and what you're looking forward to next. It started in 2016, as I mentioned earlier. I joined as the first CEO in 2018. Now here we are actually into our seventh year. We are now a publicly traded company. We went public in the middle of the pandemic in 2021. We are now a clinical stage company. And indeed, we are living up to our modality agnostic vision to pursue both rare and prevalent forms of heart disease. So we have a small molecule in the clinic that is pursuing HEFPEF, which is actually one of the leading causes of heart failure today, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But we also have an AV gene therapy for which we have a cleared IND, and we're looking forward to dosing patients this year. This is for the leading genetic cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is due to the MyBPC3 mutation. We have another AV gene therapy behind that, which is for the leading genetic cause of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. It's a different form of heart failure, another lock and key gene therapy. And we have a cardiac regeneration effort that came from our founders, where we've demonstrated in human-sized heart that we can deliver proprietary combinations of genes that stimulate the heart to create new heart muscle, very different from cell therapy approaches that haven't worked. So I'm just giving you a flavor. And I mentioned gene editing also going on at the company. So we are only 145 people. So sometimes people get quite amazed at the breadth and depth of capabilities and science going on over here. And that has required some thoughtful, deliberate choices about what capabilities and science to internalize and what capabilities and science to externalize and rely on external parties. For a 145-person company, we have our, a deep research organization, about 50 people there. We have our own manufacturing capabilities, both non-GMP and a GMP facility, so about 50 people there. We've got a healthy and growing development organization that is capable of pursuing both the rare genetic disease as well as a program like HEFPEF, which is a prevalent heart disease indication. So we've made some pretty deliberate choices about where we've hired and what we've internalized and what we've chosen to externalize to pursue a very rich set of opportunities. It certainly seems like, given the fact that you are modality agnostic, but very focused on a particular therapeutic area, that can be quite complex from a team building perspective. Curious to hear your own mental model around where you've arrived in terms of what a good team looks like when you're taking that approach, which I think is quite unique and interesting. I would say the short answer is, like for every startup, Rahul, you got to go for people who are going to be, I guess it's an overused term, but great athletes. You hear this very often, right? This term of great athletes, but not just at the executive team level and the CEO level, but down to your scientists, right? We look for people who we think have, they're not just 
In fact, a lot of our scientists and a lot of our most productive scientists weren't necessarily gene therapy specialists. They were just great molecular biologists. And we paid very close attention to hiring people who we thought, well, we can apply them to this project, that project, and that project. And by the way, those three projects may be very, very different, but they were just outstanding talent. And so we've gone with a great athlete, best athlete model. We've gone with people who are excited by and comfortable by both the risk and ambiguity that comes with pioneering and new territory. I mean, a lot of the things, as I mentioned, with first in class, there was no proof of concept before these individuals generated that proof of concept for what we have done preclinically and now what we're taking into the clinic. So I'd say we've been very thoughtful about the kind of people we've hired. And there are not too many true specialists. We've got a sprinkle of like, here's some people who have some experience in gene therapy. Here's some people who've got experience in cardiology. Here's some people who've got experience in rare diseases. There's some people who've got experience in manufacturing and the complexity of manufacturing, including across multiple modalities. So in every chair, we try to be thoughtful and deliberate. We're looking at person not only through the lens of what we need to hire for that role, but what can they bring that helps us across multiple areas of need for a rapidly growing company that's trying to do something that in many cases has not been done before. But we have to have to make choices. Like we're modality agnostic, but we can't possibly build up both a gene therapy expertise as well as a small molecule expertise, right, with medicinal chemistry, as well as an antibody expertise and a gene editing expertise. So we've been clear that our early, early areas of focus are we're very good at AAV and viral vector gene therapy. We have capsid engineering efforts, promoter regulatory engineering efforts. We have our own non-GMP and GMB capabilities with upstream, downstream analytical developments. So we've double-clicked on that. And a lot of those skills are relevant as we pivot into gene editing or gene silencing, for example. But we chose not to, for example, have a medicinal chemistry group to work on small molecules. Because we think those capabilities, there are enough CROs out there who, if you give them a target and give them an initial backbone, can very rapidly develop a pretty compelling small molecule, which is exactly how we developed the small molecule TN301 in our portfolio today for HEFPEF. So making those choices about what do you think you need to be great at and where the science is differentiated and will predict your future success versus what can you afford to outsource where there's enough good capability out there and we can rely on that. And those choices, the decision you make today may be different than the decision you make three years from now or four years later. Being able to be nimble and pivot in the direction of where your science and strategy and portfolio is taking you versus saying, we made this choice three years ago. We're stuck with that choice. I think you have to be nimble. And that's something we can carry forward into the discussion as well. This idea of being nimble, just in time, talent, and capabilities. Great segue. So curious to hear your thoughts on, as we think about the future of biotech and what are opportunities that we see to increase efficiency and value creation. I'm curious to hear your point or your perspective on rate limiters that you see to value creation currently and what are the different vectors to pursue in terms of more nimble assembly of teams and perhaps even business model innovation overall in biotech and pharma? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think part one, the answer is talent. And part two, maybe is strategic focus. And part three is a little bit of imagination, creativity and imagination. So what do I mean by that? Talent. I think we're in a period where putting aside the current market environment, which is pretty brutal, but in general, we're in an era where there's a lot of capital out there. There's more capital than it's ever been. Yes, there'll be cycles of booms and busts, and we're currently in a bear cycle. But in general, there's more capital available than ever 
to pursue new ideas. In fact, some companies get too much capital. And there's more science emerging than ever, right? I mean, the rate at which pick a topic and PubMed will show you just a hockey stick of publications and a hockey stick of patent applications. And if you look at Google patents, so we have more science than ever, we have more capital than ever, but talent isn't keeping up pace. So we are having to take bets on early. I'm a new CEO. A lot of, I mentioned my executive team or first time in their role, but talent is one of the rate limiting steps. We just don't have enough talent to assemble around all the capital and around all the ideas that we have to shake out. So I think that's a rate limiting step and there's no single silver bullet about how to develop more talent, but you're clearly going to have to take more risks on people because there's a shortage of talent and you're going to have to be very thoughtful and deliberate about your talent pool and how you're going to deploy it and how you're going to sort of avoid single points of failure. You've got one specialist in something and you need other people. So talent is one rate limiting step. I think for our entire field, we've got capital, we've got science. I said about a little bit of creativity and focus. There are so many opportunities emerging as a result of all this science and insights. I mean, every day, more papers, more genetic insights, more genomic insight. The rate in scientific innovation and insight generation has gone fast and it's increased and it's only going to go faster. So I think the old model, it's not going to go away, but the established big pharma model that, look, we're really good at this and that's all that we do. We're really good at this therapeutic area or this modality. And that's what we do. And we're going to build these super tanker capabilities around, you know, research and development and even commercial. And that's what we do. And we're going to ignore everything that doesn't fit into one of our core competencies. I think on one hand, you need more focus than ever, but I think you also have to be more nimble than ever in terms of your areas of focus. So if you see an adjacency, you see some new insight, I think my hope is when you project that to 2050, Rahul, one, we'll see some disruption of the top 10 big biopharma companies there today that you'll see some new names. Moderna is a new name that's emerged in the last couple of years. And I think I hope that you're going to see some new names in that list because there are companies who are willing to think differently about a modality, about a therapeutic area, about a business model in a way that allows them to have rapid success that's hard to replicate. So companies are going to need to be better at assembling talent, insight, strategic focus, capabilities, even a business model, not quite just in time, but more nimbly than what they did the last five years may not serve them well the next five years. And that's something I would like to see happen and something I expect to see happen and to pursue new areas of potential opportunity and do it kind of quickly. And that's going to require creativity. That's going to just require, I'm willing to break down a traditional mold of how we do direct development, kind of like what Tanaya is trying to do with its modality agnostic pursuit of both rare and prevalent forms of heart disease, but focused on the heart. It's going to require somebody to say, I'm going to stitch together that insight and insight from here. And I don't own it all. I'm going to have to work with somebody else. More biotech to biotech, for example, collaborations where, hey, I'm an expert in gene therapy. You're an expert in the heart. And we're going to work together and together advance something that we couldn't do alone. And then more willingness to consider different business models. I don't love the fact that our industry is up there or down there with big oil and big tobacco. In terms of reputation, that's a mm -hmm. travesty given what we're trying to do and the amount of potential we have. So I think we have to be willing to think differently about patents and exclusivity and price and business model. Again, keeping patients front and center and thinking about that globally and just being willing to do things differently that might look like you're taking a hit versus the traditional model in the short term, but is expanding the pie of opportunity in the long term. And so what do I mean by that? I also mean by maybe not thinking about your world entirely through, I'm going to be a very expensive one-time gene therapy in the US and EU, where I can know I can command these high prices. 
but thinking about, well, what if I were to create a model that allows me to fly patients from around the world to centers of excellence to get that one-time therapy and then allow them to go back and live completely different lives? And that's valued by companies around the world. And Novartis is paving the way a little bit here with Zolgensma, an AAV gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. At this point, they've treated more than 2,300 kids in 40 countries. That means that they're not just focused on the US and EU5 in Japan. They've clearly gone a level below. In there, there's a kernel of insight that there is a lot more opportunity if you're willing to widen your aperture about what's possible, both in terms of business model and go-to-market strategy. And so I would hope to see more of that over the next, I guess now, 30 years leading up to 2050, Rahul. And it's going to require courage, creativity, focus, and a really different kind of biotech model, a very different kind of biotech leader to do that and pursue that. Yeah, I certainly agree on many of those points and you know, particularly on talent, driving accessibility to talent, but also really leveling up this next generation of folks that are coming up and providing them the resources that are required. I think it's a fundamental gap and quite the threat to the future of how our industry operates. Yeah. Great. Well, Faraz, before I let you run, would ask you to reflect one more time. We've done a bit of reflection today already, but yep. one last time, as you think about your own personal journey and go back to when you were a kid or in your younger days, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know and what you've experienced? I would say I've been blessed that mostly I've been given access to outstanding opportunities. Things didn't come easy. There's a lot of hard work involved. So that's traditional. Like you got to work hard. I've already mentioned the willingness to pursue opportunities that you don't feel like you're necessarily qualified in paper, but being willing to do the work in terms of study and build the capabilities and build the knowledge that you need to, maybe what you didn't get in college or graduate school, but be willing to do that. I think those are all choices I made that I like, and I'm glad, and I would repeat those again. There were moments in time where I was unhappy because the fit between what I was doing and the talent I brought and the leadership or the culture wasn't great. And sometimes it took me too long to recognize that. And again, life is short. And on one hand, I want people to stick to things. And I've generally stayed long for in companies. I was at Genzyme for nine years. I've been at Tanaya for six years. I was at Bluebird for five years. So I tend to stick, but be clear with yourself about when that fit isn't perfect and move on because there's lots of opportunity and move on when it doesn't feel like there's a connection between your skills, talents, the opportunities and passion and the reward and recognition and the overall profile. I have to say one thing we haven't touched upon is personal life. And I'm a dad to three girls. I have three daughters all within 20 months of each other. So they're between ages nine and 10 right now. And that has been life transforming for me. You don't know who you are completely, I think, sometimes until you've gone through that. And I used to think that it was going to have to be this tremendous trade-off between being a good dad and being a good in my career and industry. And I may have even delayed starting a family, you know, subconsciously as a result of that. I think we're in a whole new world, in a whole new era where I think great leaders find a way to be good at their job and good at their home. And I think that the moment has never been better to be in a culture and environment that is supportive of you in your career, but also supportive of you as a father, a mother, a son, a daughter. So I would advise my younger self to make sure that you're always keeping that in mind, not just pursuing the science and the passion, but does the leadership and the culture support me as a person and where that has happened for me, that has actually been where I've gotten the greatest joy, where there was a leader and a leadership and a culture that supported my evolution as a person, my transition to being a married person, my transition to being a father, and my transition to 
being a father of multiple children, there are companies that support that more than others. And I would advise my younger self to pursue the personal goals and to keep that in mind, both as a early in your career when you're selecting companies, that what's going to be a company that will support my evolution as a person and a father, a parent, and also as a leader then being cognizant of that and making sure that you are paying that forward and creating that environment like that for others. Then I think now at my stage of my career, I'm much more clear about that and I'm much more forceful about stating that. Early in my career, I don't think I was as forceful in both expecting that and asking for that and looking for that, but also giving that earlier in my career when I wasn't as aware of the importance of being able to balance work and life and creating that kind of culture. And I would say, just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. There's a lot of great things to be done do them, make your life meaningful and purposeful. And I'm glad that I've been able to do that. But I would repeat that all over again to my younger self, that there's a lot of good to be done in the world, a lot of good to be done in this sector in particular. I think it's a fabulous sector. Ignore the negativity that you may be perceiving associated with our sector and just focus on doing some good in the world. And that will be a life well spent. Wonderful. Well, Faraz, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for spending some time with us and for sharing a bit about your own personal journey, learnings, as well as the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Tanaya. Yeah, you're doing important work here yourself, Ravel. This is so great. I think our industry needs to share more with each other. And this biotech podcast, I'm looking forward to going back and binge listening to a whole lot of past podcasts. And I would advise your listeners to do that as well. We need that. Nobody has all the answers. The network is the computer here. And there's a lot of great talent and a lot of great perspectives and experience out there. Your podcast is a really important way to bring that out. And so I thank you for the work that you're doing to benefit our field. Yeah, really appreciate your support for us. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.